Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some okay, awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have returning for the third time your friend and my friend. You know him by the name Science Mike. Welcome back to the show, Mike. I'm pretty sure this is now the podcast I've been on the most other than the podcast I host. Really? Oh, man. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done a, a, a triple shot anywhere. Wow. I feel so honored. And, <laughs> and wow. I feel so, and to think, like, the first time, you weren't even a podcaster at the time. You had posted a, uh, something that went on Relevant. I saw it, and I thought, I want to talk to this guy. And now that's amazing. That's like forever ago. That's that's a different iteration of of Science Mike. <laughs> I literally podcast for a living now. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like, in some ways, I, I mean, it's basically my fault. I because I knew you before you were a podcaster, and so like me, I guess it was Pete Holmes. Uh, yep, we're basically like your podcast parents. Literally true. Yeah, that's. That, that's not literally true, but... In fact, I might think, like, um, in a podcast context, um, <laughs> I don't know, you might, other than the Pete Holmes show, you might have been the first podcast to invite me on. Oh, goodness. I, like, my podcast heart is just swelling right now. I, uh, I'm so proud. And you did, you've, you've done so well. Like, um, I had one of my good friends... He called me up after uh, the Science Mike. Okay, obviously you're in the liturgist. Everyone knows that. And you have Ask Science Mike, which is the other podcast. And one of my friends called me up. Wait, he goes, um, I'm trying to understand Science Mike, but he's just, he's just really good to listen to. And he, he's just really <laughs> smart. Um, and so I was just, yeah, that's, that's, you've done well. Um, good job. It's been fun. I, mean, uh, I got an iTunes review this week because I'm, I'm that person that reads all the iTunes oh, reviews. Goodness. All of them. Oh, no. Every single one. And it was basically like someone was like, you know, I'm really conservative theologically. I don't really know why I listen because <laughs> every week he says something that makes my blood boil. But I really like listening because he's fun to listen to and kind. You're Yeah, you're disarming. Like you... People might hate the words that you say, but it's hard to actually hate you. I mean, I'm sure some people hate you, but most of the time, even if they dislike what you say, you're, you're very disarming. So It's because I know I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so you can't be like, I can't believe... Like if some, it happened today, I, tweet, I said something on a podcast, and like a neuroscientist who listens to the show was like, that's not true. I was like, well, tell me about that. <laughs> and then I just retweeted his very informed idea because you know what I mean? If the game is just being right all the time, I'm out. Yeah. I can't, no, but I can't do that. Yeah. So well, what I can do is learn, be respectful and God. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Learn. Well, the difference is I get podcast reviews and I read mine a couple of weeks ago and one was like, um, you know, Luke, Luke has good guests and, uh, Sometimes he's just really immature, and he annoys me and his <laughs> guests. <laughs> oh, okay, well, That's thanks. Terrible. Thank you. Or I don't know what it, it was. Something about me being a smart aleck, which I mean, it's very tough to imagine me as a smart aleck. So I think I'm going on iTunes as soon as this is over. <laughs> I'm finding that review, and what says, "Did you find this review helpful?" With great vindication, I'm going to say no. No, thank you. <laughs> the revenge of Science Mike. He's got my back. He's got his podcast 
father, co-fathers back. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Okay, so um, I knew this book was long overdue, like the Science Mike book, which is entitled Finding God in the Ways. I knew it was going to happen. Came in, and I was like, okay, we're going to talk the end of August, uh, so I'm going to start reading it um, like the week before, so that way I don't like forget anything, can be fresh. And so I sit down, today is um, what's the, t- Tuesday, Tuesday, right? Correct. Okay. A watch confirmed. So I sat down Saturday morning. I was at uh, a little retreat with my coworkers at a lake house here in Austin on Lake Travis, and I read the first half of the book, and I was just like, "Wow, this is this is really good." I think I emailed you this, and I I mean this as a compliment. I hope it sounds like a compliment, but it's like a really smart, nerdier version of of Don Miller wrote "Blue Like Jazz." That's what the first <laughs> half is like. <laughs> Is that I, is that a compliment, right? It is. Okay. And that, um, <laughs> there's been more than a few um, nerdy blue like jazz uh, descriptions from folks really? who've read it. Yes, multiple. Um, which is not it's about three. Okay. Well, but I mean, if you consider the number of people in the world who've read the book <laughs> right now, that's a decent percentage. Um, how, how did? Which was not intentional. I mean, I loved. I love Don's work. Uh, Blue Ick Jazz was an important book for me. I think, you know, honestly, some of Don's more recent stuff with story brand and, and storytelling he's done, I think, is, 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 is more important and, and contributes even more than Blue Like Jazz did. But mm-hmm. uh, I'll take it. Well, I've, how did you... So at first you feel like... It, it, and I'm judging by your answer that you're trying to say, I didn't try to write like Don, like you weren't ripping off his style... Uh, is that how you heard that, or what did you what did you feel when you first? Oh no, no! It's just several people said. No, I was really affirmed. I think so. Don Miller's an amazing writer. Yeah, like he really like forget whatever the content of the book is, just in crafting sentences that are fun to read, mm-hmm. that create a sense of emotional resonance, that increase your understanding, that are clear. He's a phenomenal writer. So any comparison, yeah, is a compliment. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I, okay, good, good. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. So your like, moniker is science, Science Mike. Um, yes. Which, coincidentally, our last podcast, I think, was titled Science Mike or Magic Mike, which was the same <laughs> joke that Pete Holmes used uh, on one of the blurbs. I don't know if it's on the final one, but I saw it on one of the press... Yeah, they edited that down. <laughs> they edited that out? The printed <laughs> copy of the book, which really, if there's one editorial decision in the entire process <laughs> I disagree with, it was removing that joke. Oh, that's sad. It, well, again, that speaks to Pete and I's shared uh, paternity of you. I mean, we, we made the same absolutely. joke. Um, a- a- absolutely. Yeah. Um, I forget where I was going with that. I was going somewhere, though. Um, we're going to start over, though. The, uh, Maybe Pete listens to your show he, he's, to steal material. That, you know, that's very, that's very realistic, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure he and Judd are sitting down talking about their new show going... You know Norsworthy, he said this thing in a sermon last week, and it's really funny. I'm sure HBO will love it. It's very realistic. Now I have that visual in my head. <laughs> just, I'm just picturing it. I can just see him like crowded around like a little MacBook Pro, and they're like watching like the video of the sermon going, oh, that, see what he did with his hand? Yeah. Okay. Well, it starts there in the writing meeting, and they're like, God, I got nothing. <laughs> I don't either. You know what we have to do, don't you? 
Yes. Yeah. Then they open the open the yeah, book. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Like some random preacher in Texas. Let's watch what he does. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's let's get back on track here. Um, what surprised me when I read the book by the man monikered as Science Mike, that's where I was going with this. Um, it starts off in the first half is telling a story. It's telling your story. And it's not like a here's 10 reasons on why a scientist becomes uh, a, a theist again. Like it, but it's, it's narrative. Was that the original intention when you set out to write the book? Or was that something that morphed in the process? It was 0% the intention when I started to write the book. Just not, not a thing at all. The book started out as like my encyclopedia of how science and faith interact, mm-hmm. almost reference style. Okay. To give you some idea, <laughs> uh, the first table of contents I came up with was 39 pages. <laughs> let, me, let me say that again. The table of <laughs> contents was 39 <laughs> pages. So, I, you know, I'd been talking about writing this book and, and self-publishing, and um, my friend uh, Rob said, you don't need to self-publish a book. You need to publish-publish a book. Just send me what you're working on. So, like, really nervous. I, I send this guy, I send Rob, like, this 39-page table of contents. I'm like, here's what it's about. And he replies, he goes, well, that's an outline. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just the most polite way to say, wait, what? He's like, so what is like the one thing you're trying to tell people? I was like, one thing? I, got th- I have like 3,500 things I want people to know. <laughs> and that began the process of figuring out like, what is this book really about? And it was later, as I realized this book is about helping people who want to believe in God, but have trouble doing so because of how they view the world through science or because of, you know, other modern contexts, the most effective way to do that uh, was in a narrative form. So the, the point of the first half of the book is so that the, the reader who doubts feels a sense of solidarity. They feel like I'm speaking from a place of experience because I don't have any authority. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a scientist. So the only, the only way I can stake a claim on this topic is by my own personal experience. And, um, and I even kind of went back and forth with my publisher on doing the story at all because I was like, listen, this has been all over the internet. I've, I've done several pretty big podcasts and people have heard my story. No one wants to hear it anymore. And their feedback was, well, actually, I don't know if you know this, not everyone has heard your story. Most people haven't. And not everyone listens to podcasts. So for a lot of people, we kind of have to introduce them to who you are and what you're yeah. about so that they'll take the second half of the book, the part of the book I really wanted to write, seriously. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard your story. Both you've talked about on this podcast. I've heard you elsewhere. And I still enjoyed, and I found, I found myself really anticipating what was going to come next in the narrative, even though I've heard the narrative multiple times. So um, that's where... Th- there's, there's a degree to which I can go deeper into the narrative where I can explore things I don't have time to explore on stage or on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I did enjoy that. This is like the, the director's cut of that faith lost and found yeah. story. But, I mean, it, it's good. And here's the thing that I always keep going back to, and I think we probably mentioned this at some point before, or at least I, I feel like I would have asked the question, is for someone who is so analytical 
data-driven, empirical, sciency, whatever word you want to use, um, it's, it's experience that has such a formational aspect on your life. It's your parents' divorce. It's the charismatic, uh, mystical experience of, of a voice that you hear while you're taking Eucharist, of being on the shore in the water, washing over your feet. Um, it, it, and it seems like those two things are so diametrically opposed, like a guy whose moniker is science, right? And then experience is such a big part of it. So, like, how, how do you continue to explain that to people who go, that doesn't seem like it should fit together? I think they just fit perfectly together. Because when I heard this voice of Jesus, and when I had this experience that felt like I was in the presence of God on that beach, I was an atheist at that time. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe Jesus was ever a person. I didn't believe in any god or gods. Mm-hmm. I was a real atheist. Um, and I had this really powerful experience. And uh, the first thing I did was get a CAT scan because I thought I might have a brain Hold You really got a CAT scan after you get back from Laguna? Yeah, that one's on the cutting room floor, but absolutely. I, I, I went back, made an appointment with a neurologist and <laughs> said I'm having this weird symptom. Wait, did you, you, like, you cut that out of the book? Yeah. Why did you cut that out yeah, of the book? That's a very important detail. There's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book. I mean, it, it's <laughs> I wrote I wrote almost a million words to get to the final 288 pages. So, um, I'm nothing if not verbose. Yep. Yeah, okay. So, uh, so I got I got a CAT scan, nothing, and so I start trying to like read the Bible again and study theology, and I just go, oh, this is all like fan fiction. This is people just made this stuff up. And trying to approach my experience, spiritual experience, on the other side of atheism, it actually eroded my belief, my faith, mm-hmm. in, in that moment and what had happened. So the only way I could have any confidence that there was something real about that moment was to study it scientifically. Yeah. Um, and so I think in many ways... Um, what we learn empirically, especially about consciousness, um, grounds mysticism because we start understanding that when you brain scan someone who has this very authentic experience with God, the language centers of the brain aren't part of that experience. And in a very real way, trying to put these experiences into words diminishes them and empiricism tells me that the most authentic expression neurologically speaking of faith is mysticism that was a winding long answer no that was you (laughs) in the answer you mentioned you're verbose so i mean you you stayed on point you stayed on message very well (laughs) you you referenced something in the book um about that that the the question of what is god is such a difficult question to answer because the and this is, I'm out of my depth here, but the God part of your brain is not in the language center. Can you exp- unpack that a little bit more for someone down on my level? Yeah, there's, so there's no God part of your brain, but there's a network in between parts of the brain that are responsible for how you understand God. And uh, for people who've experienced God, so the way you do this, you put someone in a brain scanner mm-hmm. and you literally ask them to think of God. 
So if you do that with an atheist, like really nothing happens. Their brain is kind of this is nothing. <laughs> but when you ask a believer to do that, you get um, a characteristic activity in the brain that looks more like uh, recalling an experience or an emotion. It's like, you know, uh, think of your honeymoon or think about love than if you say think about a chair or a basketball or a car or whatever. And you find that the neurological image of God in human brains is primarily nonverbal. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when you, and this happens a lot, skeptics who are kind of evangelical with their skepticism will pin corner Christians into a conversational corner and say, well, what is God anyway? And there'll be kind of this panic moment where the, the person of faith tries to go, uh, 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 uh. And it's not that they don't know what they believe about God. It's what that what they believe about God is nonverbal, and it takes time for the brain to analyze itself and create words related to that experience. But doing so, by the way, modifies the experience itself. Uh, this is why many mystics, even in the Christian tradition, won't offer all their experience verbally to others. It's the reason um, you know, people like Richard Rohr, when they teach people about mysticism, it's all about teaching people practices and not describing your experience to mm -hmm. them so that they can experience things for themselves and you hold on to what you found in your mm. practice. So as someone who has talked about your mystical experience so much, do you see that in your own experience with the, the moment in the waves or the voice you hear when you're taking Eucharist in Laguna? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's kind of a sacrifice I've made to offer that up to people because it distances me from the original experience. And because of that, there's other experiences I've had since then that I don't talk about, that I just sit with. I mean, do you want to just share one with us, just hypothetically? <laughs> <laughs> you said, uh, you said, like when atheists, uh, like an evangelical atheist, isn't someone who's trying to, con or uh, uh, evangelical skeptic, someone who's trying to convert people to having the same skeptical disposition. When they corner people uh, who are of faith, they have a difficult time answering that question. Uh, you mentioned somewhere else in the book that. The atheists win arguments, and humans like to win, of course. Do, do you think that yes. because spirituality, as you would argue, is a very mystical experience, um, that it's just the game itself of arguing and debating over God is set up in such a, fact, such a way that a person of faith will typically lose just because of how the, the game's set up? Yes. Okay. It's completely. It's you're using inappropriate tools for the conversation, um, scientific inquiry, is all about reducing things to verbal concepts and mathematical concepts, mm -hmm. right? Very quantifiable, very measurable. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that in some way diminishes science. Um, but it's the same thing, believe it or not, that's happening today in university funding. You pit the science department against the humanities. Who gets more grants? Who gets more funding? Science. Why? We can measure our results. We can show you what happens with investment. We can show you what happens with patents. We can show you licensing, da 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 da, da. And science wins those kinds of arguments when you start uh, in a conversation where the goal is to break things down yeah. 
into discrete components. And both art and faith instead uh, push the brain in a different direction towards a more holistic and less verbal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we don't we don't expose art to the same scrutiny that we expose faith to. Mm. If someone's like that painting is beautiful, no one says you don't really think that painting is beautiful. We just understand that it, it's it's not appropriate and, and not even beneficial for someone to sit there and try to rob someone's appreciation of a painting by forcing them to justify why they believe it is yeah. beautiful. So y- you've said that you're not trying to convince other people to believe in God. And so in some ways, uh, did I, I mean, you said it in the book about, uh, right? Okay. Yeah, totally. And so if you want to have someone else be able to appreciate the beauty, um, is there a suggestion to how to do that? I mean, it sounds like you haven't been active. I, mean, I think it'd be unfair to say that you aren't trying to help people have faith in God because you're telling your story, you're giving people tools to do that. Um, I All I want to do is help people experience Okay, God. so explain the nuance. But the difference is it's people who say, I want to experience God. Yeah. <laughs> what I don't do is go to someone who's like, I'm not interested in God. I don't say, well, you should be interested mm-hmm. in God. I don't knock door to door. I don't have a sales pitch. Uh, I very much just say, if this is something you're interested in, then I would love to talk to you yeah. about it. Uh, and from my own experience, and by the way, I would also like to hear about your experience and where you are and why, because I can learn from that too. I'm more interested in having a conversation between people interested in similar things than some kind of you know, drive to conversion yeah. or um, old school even. Yeah, or some sort of like you know, sales pitch that, that's rote and just going through the motions. Um, I, I'm a, a lot about discipleship. Mm-hmm. I am not about proselytizing. That's kind of the difference. Gotcha. Fair enough. So when you had that um, charismatic experience, mystical experience, uh, where you heard the voice that said, "You know, I was there with you, you know, during your struggles when you were a young kid, when you were eight. Um, you use this metaphor of like religion creating structures in the brain, and you can correct my details on this. But all of a sudden, when God was no longer there, it was like this massive organization had the power shut out. And the lights go off, and the CEO leaves, and then in that moment, it you have this uh, like euphoric experience because you, in your language, like the the power just come back came back on. That metaphor is so compelling to me. Like I I I love that idea. Help us understand the science behind that. When you practice faith over time, you create this network in your brain to hold your understanding of God. And the longer and more consistently you practice that faith, the deeper those neural neural connections are. Um, in the same way that the more times you do bicep curls, right, the more bicep muscles you mm-hmm. have, the more time you spend in contemplation of God, the more your brain will have a model of God, and the more that model of God will be a part of how you see mm-hmm. the world. And so over time, through skepticism, uh, my God network in my brain got shut down. It was no longer part of how I viewed reality. And it, it was such a, a, a deep network in my brain 
that I lost some of my experience that way. I, I, I no longer could experience the kind of transcendence I once felt when I worshiped God or in prayer. Um, and I looked for other things like astronomy to kind of fill that need and nothing ever quite got there. And so when I had this, this moment where I'd been challenged to look at the world using the word God again, that association with that word brought that network back to life suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, even if it was momentarily, but it was an overwhelming experience. Um, so much electrochemical activity would have happened in that moment to create that kind of feeling uh, that it would, of course, be overwhelming. And I, I kind of would say, if you want to know somewhat what that was like, if you've ever been on a diet and say you, have, you, you love pizza and you didn't eat pizza for like eight oh, weeks, yeah. and then the first time you take a bite of it's pizza amazing. again, your brain just sends all these signals to go, that's good, do that more, <laughs> right? Just this surge of dopamine, maybe even endorphins. Uh, oh, if yeah. you haven't had pizza in too long, your brain is really going to try some that. that yeah. This is an amazing thing. And that's exactly what happened to me, only uh, God was the pizza. God, that, that's, that's the tweet right there. <laughs> God was the pizza. Um, best-selling author, Science Mike. Best-selling uh, author, That's why you're going to be best... And, and listen, to be honest, you, people could just as easily call me Pizza Mike, yeah. and it would probably be more accurate. I don't know who I'd like more, Pizza Mike or Science Mike. That's a tough question. Um, so we won't answer that now. Uh, so you're saying like as you're developing, or not you're, as you're having a skeptical disposition, your awe for God was diminished. And I get that like... You're, well, my, 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 more accurately, the network in my brain became biased more towards my prefrontal cortex and away from my limbic system. I mean, that's kind of what I said, isn't it? I mean, I, I think people can listen. Yeah, Luke just said thing. that, didn't he? So I did, uh, <laughs> Trip Fuller and I from Homebrew did a, a podcast with Tony Jones and Richard Beck, uh, talking about Richard Beck's new book, and we had N.T. Wright there. And so N.T. Rives is like amazing scholar. Uh, and so afterwards, or maybe it was, I don't know if it was during the podcast, I think it might have been after, but he talked about when he was uh, doing his book on evil, that he sensed more of the presence of evil around him during that time. And my thought was, come, I mean, you're like, you're a legitimate scholar. You don't, you don't talk like that. And so I've been doing some work thinking about like skepticism and doubt. And I find myself, my, my wife recently said, Luke, you seem like you're like less joyful. And I was like, I wonder if there's mm. that connection of like you, you focus on this so much that insert brain comments right here that you can do that it changes how you experience life. Would, would that be fair to say? Analytical thinking reduces activity in your brain's emotional centers. So the more you rationally analyze a given idea, the less you will feel about it. This is why uh, intellectualization is a defense mechanism in psychology. If I can just try to understand, 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 understand why I'm in pain, it distances me from that Mm -hmm. pain. But it doesn't actually help me heal or recover Mm -hmm. from it. Um, So in the same way, if you spend a lot of time... um, just rationally analyzing, or if your brain is more biased towards that type of thinking, you're more likely to think about God in theological mm-hmm. terms than experiential terms, and that's true for anything. I, in the book, I talk about marriages, 
if you spend all your time rationally analyzing your relationship with your spouse uh, and no time actually experiencing your relationship with your spouse, then that relationship is going to have trouble because you're going to feel distant. You'll wonder why you don't feel for this person what you once did. And it's because different parts of the brain play different roles in our cognitive and emotional processes. And the prefrontal cortex, not the orbitofrontal cortex so much, but other parts of the prefrontal cortex uh, are largely free of emotional response. Now, the orbitofrontal cortex, which is uh, part of how we make ethical decisions, plays a huge role in guilt and shame and can provide some punch in feelings that the amygdala can't. Um, but other yep. than that, the prefrontal cortex tends to... Sorry, no, thanks Thanks for clarifying that, because I felt like I was going to have to say that same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want someone who understands yeah. neuroscience to yeah. go, wait, parts of the of prefrontal course, cortex are but involved. We in all know that. Process. Like we, we all know that. But there's some who don't, and so thanks for doing that. Um, so, you know, Brene Brown, who's, who has this great line about practicing gratitude, like she's never found a person who, who has a life of joy who doesn't practice gratitude. Like it's a reminder, like mm. if you practice this sort of disposition towards the world of gratitude then the byproduct will be a more joyful experience. Like, that's how it works. Uh, and, and you talk about um, neurotheology, which um, is something that I'm obviously very in tune to as well. Um, false. That was a joke. Uh, go ahead, write another <laughs> iTunes review about Luke being a smart aleck. There's your comment. So you say neurotheology <laughs> treats doubt as a neurological condition and would instead encourage people to imagine any god. Okay, and so it's encouraging people to imagine who God is. Now, the skeptic would go, is this just fake it till you make it? Is, th- is this all you're doing? Like you're creating this idea of God that, okay, your brain is going to morph around it, and the whole thing is built upon you just imagining some God that we have no way to know if it's actually true or not. No. Okay. Uh, here's why. Um. To understand string theory, this alternative to the standard model of physics to understanding how the world works at very small scales, we are encouraged to first imagine strings. Well, string theory doesn't actually say the universe is made of strings. It's just string is a helpful metaphor Mm. that can get us toward the final idea. And different theories, proponents of string theory will use different metaphors to help people understand it. The initial metaphor is just moving you toward an understanding. It's a scaffold to help you build up towards this idea. And my point is, neurologically speaking, if you want to feel close to God, there's many different starting points, many scaffolds mm-hmm. you can start to build. Build. There's my <laughs> coming out. You can start to build that will help you feel close to God. And the, the trouble the church often runs into is they say you have to think these precise things to get started. And neurologically speaking, that's an impediment, not an aid, even if the goal is a very specific Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. Okay, so you did... <laughs> like, when you podcast, as you well know this, like you're trying to listen to what someone says and go with them, but you keep saying crap that I know nothing about, like string theory. I don't know. How am I supposed to build up, like the yes and no. I've, I'm no and knowing. No and no. That's what you're getting right now. Okay, string theory, obviously they start with that as scaffolding. You talk about before the Big Bang, 
there's what they call the initial singularity. So like the entire existence is something smaller than a cube of sugar. Um, but at some point you, you go, well, I, where, where did that come from? Like, and so obviously there's, you just gave me a weird look. I feel like I'm... I, well, yeah, I didn't... I, I, what did you, no, go ahead. We'll see. <laughs> Let me hear what you're going to say. And then I might have, I might have prematurely judged uh, where that was going. My orbital frontal cortex may yeah, have Yeah, tell it to unfire. And just chill out. <laughs> chill out, prefrontal cortex. Um, is that right? Did I say the right thing? Yeah, orbital, orbital. frontal, which is a subset of the oh, prefrontal. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, how do I even ask? Named for the orbit of the eye, because it's, oh, it's okay. kind of behind your eye. Like right, whereas most of the prefrontal is behind So this the is the part right behind your eye. So if I poked your eye, I could touch like, it. Like here. Yeah. Got it. Uh... I mean, yeah, you'd have to go through. Yeah, the I mean, I was going to break your eye in this metaphor, which I don't want to do. Right. I'm just yeah. saying, if I did, totally. that's where it'd go. Metaphorically speaking, um, <laughs> I feel like this is the the worst of the three podcasts that we've done since I'm I'm lo- I'm losing I'm losing this game. No and no. I'm good. A I am blast. too, though. Like I don't have to win to be happy. <laughs> I know you say humans are designed to win. I'm just designed to be happy because I'm an Enneagram Seven. Um, oh, that's <laughs> deep dive right there. So. Uh, Big Bang, before the Big Bang, there's what you say, the initial singularity. Am I, yes? Mm -hmm. Just give me some positive affirmation as I'm going. Okay, Aristotle said that God is the prime mover that might have been behind the initial singularity. Okay? Yes. Uh, Aquinas adapted this to Christian theory. Um, And so, if the scaffolding of string theory has to be built upon, and, but it it has to start somewhere. Um, a Christian could look at, in the same way that string theory says, we have to start with some sort of scaffolding. Uh, a Christian could interpret all the way before the Big Bang as there's scaffolding that something starts, and we're inserting our theistic understanding, our view of God there. Whereas an atheist could just as easily say, well, um, if God was created before anything else existed, uh, so could the singular, the initial singularity. And so we're all choosing to make a leap of faith into something, and there's all a gap that we've got to fill in. Is that fair to say? Well, so what I was trying to do in, in using Aristotle's prime mm-hmm. mover statement is draw um, a connection between religious ideas about origination mm-hmm. and the singularity. Uh, what, I, what I'm not saying is that the initial singularity had to come from okay. something. Okay, yes. So the initial singularity itself could simply be where everything mm-hmm. comes from. Because in physics, there's some really strange things. It's plausible in our current understanding of physics that when you get to the level of intense space-time compression in a singularity, that time is out the window. There is no before oh, in a singularity. There is no after. It is a completely timeless mysterious state and that was my point like the the initial singularity is just as mysterious as the spirit hovered over the waters both of those things we can use language to point toward but it's not like any person can understand that now we may learn more about physics and learn more about the singularity Mm -hmm. uh gravity waves in particular could be extremely helpful in giving us a picture uh, some perspective of what happened in the earliest moments of the universe but my point is either way we emerge from great mystery and so i'm not saying um god caused the initial singularity 
um, I'm saying that in, in a very real way, when we speak of the initial singularity, we are speaking of God. Ooh. Fascinating. So even if we imagine God in some kind of personal or being concept, as Christian theology mm -hmm. tends to, what does a consciousness or a being mean that can exist in a non-causal, timeless state? We don't have any way to get our heads yeah. around that. What does a being, how can we call a being something that is aware, or how can we use the word aware in the context of something that spans all points of space-time simultaneously? We quickly hit the edge in what we understand about science today of what the human mind can understand. And my point was when I started studying that, oh, God is a perfectly fine, if, you're, if you've been an atheist, and, you're try and you want to, you have some desire for God, we already know this thing of supreme value. Uh, we know that there are this incredible mystery in these forces that created and sustained the universe. And instead of saying, uh, that was where I first found the work of God, the point of that part of the book is that's the first place I found God, period, in the same way that Albert Einstein or Spinoza mm -hmm. did. I've never had a sentence in which I said, yes, just like Albert Einstein did, I did. <laughs> so that in itself is pretty cool that you could say that. I am not comparing myself to Einstein. No, that's a, I mean... That's, that dude's uh No one, serious, But you know serious. what? No one ever called him Science Al. Never did. <laughs> that's true. No one ever did. So I'm at my, my uh, daughter's fifth birthday party just two weeks ago, and uh, one of my friends, a uh, parishioner of mine, comes up to me and says, man, I love listening to Science Mike. And I said, great. Do you listen to my podcast first? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, we'll proceed. <laughs> proceed. Um, and he says, I, I, I love his work um, in the way that he can help us pick apart some things and see things in a scientific way. And the way he does it is infused with awe. But I don't mm -hmm. feel like I can get there. It's just, okay, write this up. Let me actually read your question to Mike. So this is what he said. Basically, I really love his work and the science research-based approach to the world and spirituality. It appeals to me in many ways. But I do feel like I've lost a sense of wonder and in particular a sense of connection to the supernatural. When you can trace everything back to physical phenomenon, how do you avoid a loss of meaning and a connection to a God who doesn't seem to be as active in the world as I once hoped he was? So how would you help this guy move there? Because he senses in you an ability to do that, but he doesn't feel like he's able to do that himself. First, this way of understanding God is a God far more involved and active than any God I'd ever considered. This is a God present in every particle interaction, every collapse of a wave function into a point, every photon that strikes an atom, therefore every sunrise, mm -hmm. every breath. We can understand the neurochemical composition of the feeling that we call love. And that understanding does nothing to diminish the 
absolute beauty of experiencing mutual love with another person. Just because we start to see the mechanism behind the action doesn't diminish the Mm -hmm. action. I suspect when people ask questions like these, what's really happening is something we talked about a little earlier in the show. They've had a shift that's beautiful and that they're learning to understand the world rationally and analytically, but in doing so, they're reducing the emotional significance of those very things. So it's one thing to study how love happens in the brain and the body, and it's another thing uh, when I hold my wife's hand. The simple act of holding my wife's hand is much more thrilling, much more visceral, much more life-giving, I would dare say, than reading a 1,200-page volume on the neurochemistry of love. And in the same way, in our faith, it is important, maybe even essential, to study and understand and dig into these mysteries. But sometimes it's also important to simply enjoy the practice of faith, the kind of intimacy we experience in worship, in communal worship, in prayer, in meditation, in studying the scriptures, and placing ourselves inside the story of the Christian faith. A a balanced faith is going to involve both. A faith that is too experience-driven is a faith um, that maybe loses some grounding, a faith that can seem shallow, but a faith that is entirely rhetorical, logical, and analytical uh, eventually comes to feel like dead men's bones. Yeah, that's good. I think it was Ricor who talked about a second naivete. And so his language of construction, mm. deconstruction, reconstruction that Rohr uses, or, uh, or Brueggemann's order, disorder, reorder. Um, I, I think it's, it's a whole lot harder, but I think once you can bring it all together, I think there's something that's much more meaningful beyond just a simple naive kind of picture of things. And I, and I think that's what you're pointing people towards. And so I really, I really appreciate that. And one of the things that I, I think that is is experienced in the book is your appreciation for those who were generous to you while you were going through like your reconstruction. Like you have a, um, you know, like youth pastor or something who used the metaphor of like, there was a person who's basically almost dead. And then they, uh, came back to life. Not literally they weren't dead, but they were almost there and they had to relearn basic functions of, of being human. And a lot of ways, like you're doing that with your, with your spirituality. But before that it required, people like your mom and and your wife to be gracious to you. And I love the line that you say that the the appropriate response to someone who's really struggling with their doubts is a hug, right? And so if if the people who are listening to this, maybe they're uh, some church people who have uh, like a kid or something who's going through doubts themselves, and they they don't know what to do, how can they follow like the example of your mom and learn how to extend the right sort of love that is a conducive environment for someone to maintain that relationship while still doubting. You affirm your love for the person. You affirm the validity of their struggle and their doubts. You don't go, how could you doubt this obvious thing that God is real? And in doing so, minimize the struggle that they're in. And you avoid... um, Placing a condition of devoutness on the relationship. 
So uh, one of the, the sociological mechanisms uh, religions use to create adherence or conformity in their ranks is the threat of social shunning. Um, and that works really well as long as you're the dominant people group. Yep. Um, but as the, the, the dominance of Christianity fades in this country, you end up self-shunning uh, because you, you, you push people out of the tribe and then they find a bigger, friendlier tribe and then people in the church look out and go, wow, leaving the church worked really well for that yeah. person. <laughs> leaving their family behind worked really well. They have a dramatic story now. We are the bad guys and everybody over there is doing great. So I think it's important to put your faith into loving action and not an yeah. argument. Um, if the a lot of people, they're especially young people, their criticism of Christianity is how insular it can be, how we're more concerned with big, pretty church buildings than uh, renewing the world. So go get your hands dirty. Uh, that'll make more difference to someone who's doubting to see your faith put into action for people in need than the most elegant apologetics argument you could yeah. pose. Now, one of the things that that's often or that's also required, and I think you demonstrate this in your story, is a sense of consideration for the other person. So, if you're the "quote unquote" doubter and the other person is, you know, firm in their faith, uh, you doubting puts a weight on them. Like it, it brings uh, more than just it brings cognitive dissonance to them of how do I make sense of my conviction and also my sense of feeling for the other person. And I think it would be difficult and maybe dishonest for the, uh, the doubter to be the one to fully expect the, the other person only to be extending the olive branch. Like there is a responsibility to be considerate of what your doubts mm. are doing to them. And I think you try to do that. Uh, I'm not going to say that lying about your beliefs for two years is maybe the best thing to do, um, I'm not going to say lying is, is the right option, but underneath that act was a sense of, I'm going to be considerate for your family. And so I think that's, that's important. I think you have to give the love that you want to receive. Not that you're earning love, but that's how relationships work. That's a good point. Uh, one I've literally never well, considered. You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> and that's why you keep coming back to the podcast. That's right. Okay, uh, That's right. your book, Finding God in the Waves. Uh, I, I'll put this out the week it comes out. So, friends, just go get this one. You're going to like it. Uh, it's it's well written, and there's it's a good story, and there's got some really good stuff uh, in the second half. And there's an index. Let, which, let me I look mean, at the index on. I have right now. It's my favorite part of the book. I didn't write it. Oh, you've got my the index says chapter one, page zero zero. Chapter two, page zero zero. Chapter three, zero zero. So. Did I mail you a book, they or did the they publisher mail you a book? They sent me a second one that's actually the published version. That, but Rob's forward sucks in this one, because it's just, <laughs> TK, please reserve four pages. TK, please reserve. So I don't know what Rob was doing there. Is that like his NUMA, like the, like the, the real elongated like spaces and stuff? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, well, actually, you're on, you're on. I mean, you've got your own book, and this is going to be terrible radio. <laughs> but I will show you. A page of the forward and see if perhaps this character is familiar. <laughs> the the man 
which the I man can, love. The man knows how to do his own thing, and that's that's respectable. So buy the book, not just for Rob er, Rob's intro with the, dare I say, the patented belly and spacing. Yes, yeah, we can call it that. The, the poetry that's meets it. prose yes. is Rob. Um, this book's great. Uh, go get it, Mike. Well done on this. Thanks, Luke. And stop Thanks recording. for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>